0: Hello, and welcome to Asbury Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Deviney. I'm the lead pastor at Asbury. We hope this podcast is going to enrich your walk with Christ. It'll hopefully increase your knowledge of the Bible, and then we hope it'll be entertaining for you as well. We are almost done going through our catechism, and I'll just emphasize we're, we're kind of doing this at a really high level, even with the podcast. You know, We're, we're going kind of high-level stuff. Um, so you may want to, at some point, just pick up a copy of it. Um, I I thought we had extras lying around the church. Actually, we don't, which, which means y'all have picked them all up already. So if you've got one, read it. Uh, it's also available as a PDF online for free at globalmethodist.org. Uh, you can just download the PDF. Um, but, you know, read through it. Uh, read the uh, Read the scripture passages that go along with each part of the catechism. Um, just, just do that and go a bit more in depth. But today, um, we're going to continue a little bit about what I talked about this past Sunday in my sermon, which is, um, the unique Wesleyan understanding of God's grace. Now this is, this is, uh, I'm not going to say it's the most important, most distinctive Wesleyan thing because actually I'm going to be talking about that this coming Sunday, but it's it's up there. It's up there as one of the most important parts of our theology, so much so that, you know, I I sit on the uh, Mid-Texas Conference Board of Ministry, which means I interview, uh, along with many other people, uh, candidates who are seeking ordination in the mid-texas conference of the global methodist church and and one of the things that comes up over and over again um is we we ask them about god's grace and how it works and um we, we get lots of folks who are either transferring in from other denominations or um or like many of us they're transferring in from the umc and they haven't been educated properly in what methodist theology really is and they struggle with um with our understanding of God's grace and how it works. And it's actually one of the things we, we spend the most time correcting, I think, um, it is let's teach you about how God's grace works and, and what it's really all about. And the reason is we're, we're really kind of, we're the only Protestant denomination in the world that teaches this particular understanding of God's grace. And I think it matters because I, I do think it is, um, uh, objectively the best way to understand how God's grace works. Now, there are other churches that teach something similar. There are other churches that teach effectively the same thing in practice, but they don't necessarily define it with the same language we do. Um, But it's really, I think it's just, it's a crucial piece to get right. Um, And I I think in particular, our under I mean, our understanding of sanctifying grace and prevenient grace are probably the two most important pieces. You know, justifying grace, convincing grace, these things are, are important, but um, most people don't have much of a, a problem understanding those and what and what they mean. It's the other two that, that we really uh, <coughs> uh, are responsible for in terms of, I think that we have a responsibility to teach these things not only to our own church, but um, to teach them to the world. And the reason it matters is because there are um, there are lots of problems that come into Christian theology and Christian practice when you don't understand how these graces work, and, and we'll just take them one by one. Provenient grace, right—the grace that goes before. Now, I, I talked on Sunday about why how this is this is our response to the same problem that we see uh, with the Calvinists, which is that. Human sin has so corrupted human nature that we are incapable on our own of doing good. And if you want evidence of that, just read the book of Genesis. I mean, at any point, at, literally at any point, um, you know, the first 11 chapters are pretty good about that. But but if you read the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and you pay close attention, you start to realize they they all are kind of terrible. Um you know, they're, they're held up as these examples of righteousness, but if you actually follow the story, it takes these men almost their entire lives to learn how to be righteous and faithful. Uh, they make poor choices, lots of them, and, and God has to go to extreme measures with, with all of them uh, to, to teach them how to be the patriarchs of his people, how to be the covenant bearers, how to be righteous and faithful. Um, and of course, I mean, really the whole Old Testament in a lot of ways does a phenomenal job of illustrating the just broken, brokenness of human nature and how, how far we have fallen. Because you're just astounded as you read through it, that people would do some of the things that they do. You're astounded at at the choices that people make, not just the pagan people, but but God's people who ought to know better, who uh, who have witnessed God doing amazing things in their life. Um, you're still astonished at some of the things that they choose to do. But I also think um, the evidence is just all around us. It's all around us that that we um, the the. The phrase, the way that Wesley described it is we have a bent toward sinning. And I believe it's made it into some hymns also, that we have a bent toward sinning. Right, We're just, we're inclined to evil. You know, if you've ever had a toddler, you know this, right? I mean, toddlers, toddlers, um, toddlers know how to be selfish, right? Children, children are born knowing how to be selfish. They're born knowing how to, how to put themselves first. They're born knowing how to lie. Uh, If you've never noticed that, um, they're born knowing how to manipulate. I mean, they just do it. You have to teach them how to be kind. You have to teach them how to share, right? I mean, it's a big one with every toddler. You have to teach them how to share. Uh, You have to teach them to be generous. You have to teach them to be loving. And, And a lot of that happens just by demonstrating through your own behavior what that looks like. But nonetheless... Uh, you have to teach them these things. You have to teach them not to not to make fun of people. Um, you have to teach them how to have empathy. You know, and you have to teach them how to treat animals kindly, right? I mean, if you have pets and toddlers, you know that you have to teach them not to like hit the animal, right? I mean, it just all this stuff. Um, so the the evidence is just all around us that by our our nature is broken. Um human nature is broken and it, it's not it, it's it's just been twisted and it's been warped and we're inclined to evil things. And you can of course see it all around in the world today. Just look at any news headline. We are we have a bent toward evil. All of us do, by the way. And it's important we recognize that. It's important we understand um, that just saying you believe in Jesus is not sufficient. Um, you know, we, we, we all, there's evil all around us. There's evil going on. Listen, I'm about to make some of you angry probably, but I, you know, I've watched over recent weeks as people who, who claim to follow Jesus have been outraged that the federal government is removing razor wire from the border. Razor wire that would slice up and maim and kill children. Children. And these are people who say they follow Jesus. And I'm telling you now, if you're outraged by that, uh, I I don't know that you're following Jesus. Because I don't think Jesus wants razor wire on the border. I don't think Jesus, I don't think Jesus wants children who are fleeing. Rampant gang violence and forced prostitution To be met with a wall of wire That's going to slice them apart Just before they make it to safety I don't think Jesus approves of a nation Who uh, created Rampant gang violence and forced prostitution Through its own disastrous foreign policy To then turn away the people fleeing All of that We're evil We are Evil's all around us. We vote for evil. We, in our hearts, choose evil. There's evil on all sides of us. Conservatives choose evil. Liberals choose evil. Republicans and Democrats. Americans and non-Americans. Everyone chooses evil. It floods the world. Now, the Calvinist response to this, and if you're not—I mean, Calvinism—you know, Presbyterian churches tend—that's uh, that's Calvinism. Um, a lot of churches that put the word "reform" in their name tend to be pretty Calvinist. Um, usually, you know, people who kind of follow that Puritan line of belief are fairly Calvinist. Uh, and so you find this a lot, it's a, there's a big resurgence of it. Um, and sometimes it makes its way into the Baptist churches, not always, but sometimes. Uh, it just sort of gets mixed around there, but, but the, the general Calvinist response is, um, yes, we're all evil. We're incapable of choosing good, and so God must choose for us. And this is the doctrine of predestination, uh, which has no biblical support, by the way. Uh, uh, there, there's just nothing in the bible that, that supports it. it it comes from a gross misreading of of Romans um, but there's this um, there's there's two reasons why they go this way the first is that they insist on uh, an understanding of god's sovereignty that has nothing to do with what's actually in the bible uh, it's based actually entirely on uh, medieval understandings of god's sovereignty that were that were essentially created by medieval theologians who were used to thinking of kings in the terms of medieval kings and not what the Bible actually says. Um, So it's based on the the assumption that, well, God is is the king of creation. He, therefore, uh, must be so incredibly powerful that he determines all things. Nothing can be outside of his sovereign decree. Therefore, there can be no such thing as free will. God chooses who to save. And if God chooses you to save, his grace is irresistible. You can't reject it. Now, there's lots of problems with this. Um, for one thing, this means that they would say anyone who has come to church and accepted Jesus and later fallen away, well, they must not have really accepted Jesus. Um it creates another problem because it, it it means by necessity that God has created a whole lot of people just so he can send them to hell. And that's quite evil. It means that God is directly responsible for anything evil which happens in the world. And they'll try and argue their way around this and uh, and it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Um, there's no way around that if you're going to if you're gonna believe in this. There's no way around that if you're going to reject free will. There's no way around that if you're going to um, believe in a deterministic outlook in which God determines every single thing and the outcome of all events is already known by God. There's just no way around it. And there's also really no biblical support for it. There's just nothing in the Bible that suggests that we don't have free will. Actually, the, very much the opposite. Um, the Bible insists over and over again that our decisions matter, that our choices really matter. Um, The Bible insists that um, the people it calls wicked have rejected God. Okay, they've rejected God. Well, you can't reject God if you don't have free will. God calls the people of Israel over and over and over again to repent and turn back to God. And you can't repent and turn back if you don't have free will. And it doesn't appear that actually anything in the Bible is deterministic, right? It, because our choices matter. Our choices matter and affect the outcome of certain things. Our prayers appear to change the outcome of certain things, right? God's going to go destroy the Israelites until Moses asks him not to. And that happens over and over again. What the Bible really appears to support is a probabilistic reality, where God, in His sovereignty, focuses on probabilities, not deterministic things. And and here's a good example, right? Um, Parents with children, we we can't actually control every action our child does. Now we have power over them; we have, in a sense, sovereignty over them, but we can't. We can't actually dictate everything that they do. We can't We can't control all their decisions. What we can do is try and, you know, nudge them in the right direction and guide them and encourage them to do the right thing and teach them what the right thing is and, and sort of shape them and mold them into being the people we believe they should be. <laughs> See where I'm going with that? God knows how to shape us and mold us and guide us. God, in his wisdom, knows generally how things are likely to turn out no matter what we do. Um, and, and there is something here, too, to the idea that if God is outside time, he probably has better knowledge of the future than we do, but that that's one of those things that's far enough beyond human understanding that it's, it's probably best for us to just be in awe of it and not try to understand it. But all this comes back to the problem. So there's no support in the Bible and a whole lot of evidence against it uh, when you talk about predestination and determinism and the lack of free will. All throughout the Bible, uh, every story insists that the opposite is true, that we do in, in fact have free will, that our choices matter, that the things we do, the things we say, the prayers we pray, the choices we make change the outcome of things. But we still have this problem, which is that the Bible also contains ample evidence of our own evil. That human nature is so corrupt that even the best among us will choose evil. Even the disciples choose evil. Even Paul chooses evil. Jesus is the only one who doesn't. And and this is the brilliance of Wesley, and this is the brilliance of Methodism. Wesley says, yeah, yeah, that's in there. And so the way God solves this is through his grace. 'Cause the other thing Wesley recognized is, look, if if the Calvinists are right, non-believers should be incapable of love. In other words, if the Calvinists are right, and the only solution to evil is God picking who to save and extending his grace only to those people then, the only people in the world who should be capable of making morally correct choices, who should be capable of doing good things, of being charitable, of being loving, of being kind to anyone, not just their own family, but not, you know, to anybody, would be Christians. If Calvinists are right, then, then non believers shouldn't even be capable of being loving and kind to their spouses and their children because they're inclined to evil. <coughs> So it must be that God's grace is at work in the world, even amongst the non-believers, countering the effects of original sin, restoring and repairing human nature to some degree, and calling people to God. See, this, this solves the problem of, of, of what to do about evil because it says God's actually in, in the world countering the effects of original sin all the time which is how you can get people who are non-believers but who are still able to be loving and kind and, and we've probably all met people who were not christian who did not believe who were kind and generous and loving and we've probably all met people who are believers who were none of those things and it also solves the problem of free will without by the way without infringing on the very important reality that it is God and God alone who saves right Paul insists we're saved by grace through faith alone which gives us another problem with free will because if we are saved if it's God's grace alone that saves us how can any choice that we make then have an impact you start verging onto works righteousness here where you, where, where you save yourself, right? But, but what Wesley says is, no, 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 no. You're still saved by grace because it is only God's grace which gives you the ability to choose him or reject him. Right? If you, you have the freedom and the ability to choose God because of God's grace and you also have the ability to reject God because of God's grace the existence of the choice is there because of God's grace so that's how we solve that problem that problem of of rampant human evil the problem of original sin and the problem of free will that we, we do have free will we have free will because God gives us the grace to have free will if we didn't have if God's prevenient grace wasn't there we would have no free will because we would be totally Dominated by sin. God sends his grace before to change that. And that's provenient grace. And we have sanctifying grace. And this again is crucial because there are far too many people. Who think that um, salvation is just you pray a prayer. You're saved. You're done. Nothing else matters after that. So he says no. That's not how it works. There's no evidence. Again, there's no evidence of that in the Bible. On the contrary, there is ample evidence of God sending his Holy Spirit to train people up in holiness, to empower them to be more and more like Jesus every day. Paul talks about working out your own salvation. This is what he's talking about. Not earning it, not doing this under your own power, but under the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit becoming more and more like Jesus. And again, this matters a lot because it, it tells us that we we aren't once we're Christians. It's not just like oh great we're Christians. Nothing else to do. All set. No, once we're Christians, we have to begin allowing the Spirit to work in us. And and this is where again we get into something quite different from our Calvinist friends. We believe it's possible to lose your salvation. We believe it is, well, what we would actually say is it is possible to lose your justified status before God. It is possible to, to have been a Christian, to have been truly justified and made right before God, and to backslide, for lack of a better word. So the whole idea behind sanctifying grace is not just that, you know, yeah, we can be made more and more holy, but it's also that if we don't tend to our faith, if we don't make an effort to follow Jesus after we have been justified, we may become unjustified. Meaning that, it, you know, God is not satisfied with just you repenting of your sin, being justified, and then trying to just, you know, kick back and enjoy life. Um, he has clear instructions for his followers. And, and so Christianity is not merely about what we believe. It's not merely about... Believing the the right things. It's also about. Doing. What Jesus tells us to do. If you aren't going to do. What Jesus tells us to do. You're going to fall away. And. The. The the underlying assumption is. um, When you don't. Pursue sanctification. When you don't allow the Holy Spirit to transform you and make you like Jesus. You're going to sin more and more. You won't just be sort of stagnant. You're going to continue sinning more and more. And the more you sin, this is crucial. Because this is where we would differ from a lot of other Christians who would just say, well, yes, you'll sin more and more, but Jesus forgives you. But what we we understand is, the more you sin, the less you want to follow Jesus. The more you sin, the farther you place yourself from God. The more you sin, the more you worship your sin. right? Because sin, your sins are idols. Your sins are idols. All sin is, in one way or another, idolatry, which means you're worshiping something other than God. And so if you aren't being sanctified, you're, you're falling back into idolatry. Now, I want to be clear as well. When we talk about, you know, you can lose your salvation if you aren't being sanctified. This this isn't like a moment to moment thing. You know what I mean? Like it, it's not as if, you know, one day you do really good and you don't sin at all and you're saved that day. But the next day you accidentally do something you shouldn't do. You know, you accidentally, I don't know, whatever, whatever you're saying, you're accidentally gluttonous or something. And then bam, if you die that moment, you're going to go straight to hell. No, no, no it's not. It isn't moment to moment. Um, it, It's a process in both directions. It's a process in both directions. It's a process of salvation by sanctification, where the Holy Spirit's working within you. And, and it's a process of losing that holiness, losing that justification over time. <laughs> by, by just rejecting the ways of Jesus, rejecting the ways of holiness until your heart becomes hard again. So it isn't it isn't you know this this sort of thing where you have to constantly worry about your own salvation you don't you don't um, and and Wesley was convinced as well that we know in our hearts we know in our hearts if we are if we are saved or not and called the the assurance the assurance of salvation we feel it we know um, so that we can have certainty so that God gives us certainty about what what our status is before him um but yeah he he was convinced and i think he was right that we can lose that we can lose that if we don't take our sanctification seriously we can lose our justification because we can turn back to our sins we can turn back to our idols we can worship them over jesus which of course causes lots of problems And I don't know about you, but but to me at least, um, this understanding of grace doesn't just make sense because of what I see in the Bible. It, it it to me reflects what I see in the real world with Christians I know both personally and from a distance. Right it, to me, th- there's a clear reflection of this. It, it it's And this is what I love about so much of Methodist theology is that we look at the Bible to explain things, but we also look at the world around us and say, okay, now, does my understanding of the Bible isn't actually reflected in the real world? Because if it's not, I might have missed something. And the Wesleyan understanding of grace to me fits really well with what we can see around us in the world, as well as fitting really well with what the Bible says. I think there's strong biblical support for all of this. But I also think, any of us can look around and, and we can see in the lives of other people. And we can see in our own personal, individual experience that this does appear to be the case. That that God does appear to work in us to change us. We can see other people that change being worked in other people. It just it fits. It makes sense. Which is what I like about it. Next week, we are finishing our series on the Global Methodist Catechism right before Lent. You don't want to miss it. I'll see you all next week.